The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, as we sing, we now again echo in prayer, will you please show us Christ? We'll speak in English words, we'll listen to English words here, but you're the one who has to show, you're the one who has to reveal him. So please help us to to see with seeing eyes, to sense him in all of his goodness and all of his glory and all this sweet grace. And draw us then to be faithful followers, faithful ministers on, on his behalf for the sake of his name among all peoples. So show us Christ and then call us out to follow him and do the work of making that run. This ministry and this church, Lord, you have to make it run, so please do that. And I ask for that now. If we look at your word now, will you make it clear? Help us to understand it, make my words clear, make our listening clear, and show us Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. As we've been studying through the book of 2 Timothy, we've clearly heard Paul's call to join us, to join him in costly gospel ministry to share in suffering like a good soldier, to endure hardship and difficulty for the sake of the salvation of the elect. Those, those are the kinds of phrases that we've seen all through. It's been the broad theme front and center throughout the book up to this point. And now here, though, in the middle of chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, the conversation takes a little bit of a turn and becomes less directly about enduring and more about what we are supposed to do while we are enduring. Or to put it another way, he's been emphasizing that this ministry will bring suffering. We have to endure, yes. But now, what about the ministry itself? What can you tell us about that? We've noted, and it's worth repeating, that gospel ministry does come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. It is both a ministry of word and also a ministry of deed, a ministry of service. And some of us will be, will be more bent towards that kind of ministry, a, a serving ministry because of our various gifts or our circumstances. And that's true. We should honor that in the church. We should be clear about it, keep that in mind. But also, as we have noted, the bulk of this letter of 2 Timothy leans more heavily on the type of gospel ministry that we sometimes call the ministry of the word. That is the emphasis in our passage for today as well, a a preaching and teaching and exhorting and explaining the, the word, the message of God, the gospel as revealed in the Bible. Just like all of us are called to to ministry of service, all of us in some way or another are called to this ministry of the word, gospel ministry with with word, teaching and explaining it. So all of us in some way are, are called to this, but Timothy as a pastor 
is uniquely called to this, as are other set-apart ministers. We might, might write that with a capital M minister. People like teachers and, and preachers and maybe missionaries or, or seminary professors or traveling Bible teachers or even within the church, those who are serving as elders or Sunday school teachers, those who are kind of set apart to this particular ministry, maybe a little more than others are going to find application from much of Second Timothy, including our passage today. So I'm going to use the word minister and for some of us, that's kind of a capital M minister. Others, it's a lowercase m minister, and you kind of fill it in as, as it fits you in the circumstances and gifts that you find yourself. But we're all going to find ourselves here somewhere or another. And additionally, we're all going to find something about the church as a whole. As we see how God wants to center the church on the ministry of the word, how, how important it is, how vital it is for the life and, and goodness and, and thriving of, of the church. We learn something about, oh, that's what a church is supposed to, that's like the first touchstone of a church, this ministry of the word. And from it comes everything else. So we'll learn about ourselves and a little bit indirectly about a, a congregation as a whole. That's the approach I'm going to use this morning. With that, let me read the passage, verses 14 to 19, and I'm going to draw out three observations from it. 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his and that everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. 2 Timothy 2. So three observations. Here's the first. Ministers are to focus on lifting up gospel truth, not bickering about disputable matters. Ministers are to focus on lifting up gospel truth, not bickering about disputable matters. Verse 14 begins, remind them of these things. Well, remind who of what? Since it's been a little while since we've been looking at, at chapter 2, it's probably the case we've lost kind of the flow of thought here. But if, if you were to look back up at verse 2, you'd realize Paul's actually said something kind of like this before to Timothy. Up in 2, he said, what you've heard from me, it's kind of like these things, pass on to other faithful men, remind them. He said this kind of before. So in a way, we are returning to what he already said. And in the middle, between verse 2 and verse 14, particularly beginning in verse 8, he gave him a little reminder of what it is that he has said. You've heard, heard this before. Remember Jesus, raised from the dead, raised up Davidic king. 
That's what I preach. That's what you heard from me before. And now, then also, we can say verse 11 and verse 12. And you know that if we died with him, like he did, we'll rise with him like he did. And if we endure with him like he did, we'll be raised up to reign with him like he does. So what I'm saying, what I'm preaching, Timothy, recall this, I'm, I'm preaching Jesus, his resurrection and life, and his enduring and reigning, his gospel and what that means for you. These things, verse 14, is actually the first word for emphasis, these things remind them of. So he's majoring on those truths. These things are what you're supposed to fill their minds with. Remind faithful men, those that you're ministering to, this is what we are about. Tell them and then tell them to pass it on. So if you were to go back and start at verse 2, you'd see that's kind of the flow of this whole section here. And he wants to press that upon Timothy Help them realize this is what we stand on. These truths of the gospel. That applies to all of us. In some way, we're all in this passage. We all need to see it. That's what I'm supposed to stand on. That's what I'm supposed to major on. That's what Paul, Timothy, would want to remind me of. So it's all of us in some way, but particularly those, are, those of us who are called or who are in positions of, of teaching and leading and preaching and guarding and feeding the church. These things. Puts that first. Guys, these things remind the church of. These gospel truths, they are where life is found. He goes on in the verse to talk about what, what doesn't do good, what ruins. Well, these things are what does good to the people of God. These things, what, what leads them into life, these things is what, what draws a people on to think about and to consider God and what he has done and what's true of us and how we can walk with him and find life. These things put forward, major in this. And then don't, verse 14, this is important. I charge you before God, Timothy, make clear that they understand. Charge them before God, not to quarrel about words. I mean, the contrast is, is so extremely stark here. He walks through the, the basics of the gospel in, in several verses here and says, these things remind them of, and then I call you to stand accountable before God not to fight about words. The, the literal rendering of quarrel about words is not to get into word fights. Don't. Do. A serious call not to get into quarrels and quibbles and arguments and controversy about words. That doesn't do any good. It doesn't lead people to love God and love neighbor. And in fact, it just ruins them. How so? How does it lead to our ruin? Well, he mentioned this very thing back in 1 Timothy chapter 6, using the same word, in fact. 
False teachers there, same ones that Timothy's still facing. If you think about this, we can see how it, how it exists today still, challenges us still today. They had an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels, word fights. And he says there in 1 Timothy 6, it produced, think about this, envy and dissension and slander and evil suspicions and constant friction. That's, that's the church atmosphere. An atmosphere of envy and dissension and suspicion and constant friction. That is ruinous. To anybody who's a part of it, to anybody who comes in contact with it. It contaminates. It produces the, the world that's outside, inside the church. You, you come to church seeking refuge from the world. First, you come... You come to find, in some way or another, to, to find God, to, to come into relationship with him first, to, to understand how is it that I can be forgiven and how is it that I can come to a right relationship with God and then how can I commune with and walk with and enjoy a changed, a renewed spirit, a new heart and a new atmosphere and a new people. You come to church to find that and instead what you find is a verbal fistfight between people who are allegedly mature. I get that out there. And you brought it in here. It contaminated this place and drove away God who is grieved by all this quarreling. So don't do that. Forming of camps and, and disputing of topics and ideas. It, it is pride, it is sin, it grieves God the Holy Spirit, and it wounds people who came here hoping for in need of something else but found the world instead. I'm trying to press this and preach it home to us that Paul could not be any more emphatic about that must not happen. Charge them before God. But then we have to kind of circle back on that. So don't disagree about anything. I mean, how... How do we not disagree about anything? Okay, so I guess we don't bring up anything at all that might cause some sort of disagreement. No. This is not about don't disagree. It's about don't be disagreeable. There's a really big difference there. Don't quarrel. That's the problem here. We, how would we ever find what the truth is and how would we ever stand on it if we never brought up anything that somebody might disagree with? Everything that's true has always been disagreed with by somebody. So we're not talking about, let's water it all down. Let's try to find some lowest, lowest, lowest possible, lowest common denominator that everybody can agree on and not disagree. That's impossible, and we'd be left with nothing. It's not don't disagree. It's don't quarrel particularly about things that are not at the core of the gospel. And therefore, we can find, you know, disagreement does not endanger a person standing before God. Things that we might call disputable matters. Important matters, but disputable. 
and not at the core. It's helpful to think about kind of a target with a bullseye in the middle. And if you think about the bullseye in the middle is the, the core gospel. That which, if, if you disagree on this, you're not a Christian. And out here are a collection of things that I sort of maybe think on Tuesday and maybe my opinion changes on Wednesday. I don't know. And as you get closer to the core, each one of us should have an increasing conviction. And, and the, the statements, the, the affirmations, the denials, they become increasingly clear. But we're not going to fight about it until we get to the core. That comes up actually in verses 16 and 17. We're going to keep the lines. We're going to keep talking. And I think, we talked about this this morning in the life training class, I think part of the, the wisdom of God is shown in this. Why could he not have made everything equally as clear as the central core? Because out here, where we disagree about things that we find important, we then get to illustrate to the world something that's even more important. The greatest of these, which is love. I, I stand across the line from a brother or a sister. We agree on the central core. But here's a line, and I stand across the line. I think X, and you think Y. And at the end of the day, after we discuss it and disagree, not in a disagreeable manner, disagree. We remain in disagreement, and we link arms in love. That's not how the world works. The world says we either can't agree and so we won't connect or we'll just not talk about that at all. We'll avoid it. No, we don't avoid it. We talk. And we disagree in love. And that shows us, shows the world through us something about Jesus. I think there's something sweet there. So it enables us to talk about things that are really important, like end times things. What, what do you think about women in ministry? How about miraculous gifts for today? Important Bible topics. Or maybe we could add in things like politics or, or economics or educational choices. We could add in a bunch of different things that are important to us in different ways, but are not the center. And we can say we disagree and we talk about it, but we will not be disagreeable. We will contend for the gospel we will not be a contentious people on all these other matters. We must not be. Charge them before God. Now that's tricky, for sure. But it's helped out by the first part of it. If you remember what we major on, what we stand on, what we, what we lift up is the truth of the gospel. It kind of puts everything else in perspective. A tricky balance, yes, but an important one. Ministers are to focus on lifting up gospel truth and not bickering about disputable matters. And that's all of us, and in particular, those who are in positions of leadership and teaching. It's Paul's first point. And he moves on. Second observation. Ministers are to labor to accurately handle God's word and reject ungodly error. Ministers are to labor to accurately handle God's word and reject ungodly error. And as soon as I say that, it might 
say like, well, didn't, didn't you just say we're not supposed to quarrel about stuff? But then you said reject ungodly air. There's a difference here, which is important. We'll come to it in a second. Get this in verse 15, which is a well-known verse. Perhaps more so for the end of it, but the beginning of it is where the command lies. Do your best, he says. Try hard. There's effort here from the gospel minister. Do, do all that you can, Paul says, to present yourself to God as one approved. The picture here is one of a, of a, a job review or a performance evaluation. And Paul wants Timothy and all ministers to realize there is a time coming. There is. As a Christian, when you will stand before God for his evaluation of the type and quality of work you have done, that time's coming. For all of us, and especially for those of us who have some particular gifting and circumstance in which we preach or teach, we will all place ourselves before God and say, essentially, I mean, can you picture it? There it all is, Lord. Well, there it was. What do you think? And he will have a thought. And it will be the correct thought. He, he will think accurately about all of it. And that may sound daunting. And it should. We will give an account for the life we lived here, even as Christians. Even as Christians. Jot down 2 Corinthians 5, if you wonder about this. You can look there and see. Paul there also says, we will stand, we Christians will stand before the Lord and give an account for the deeds done in the body, whether they be good or bad, and receive some sort of commendation or not. That's for Christians. Not, let's, let's be really, 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 really clear here, not judged about whether or not we're approved of by God for eternal life. Not judge whether or not we're forgiven. Not in that sense. If you are in Christ, if you're a Christian in Christ, that question is settled. That question is settled. You're in Christ, for sure, end of discussion. We stand in grace, forgiven. Stand in grace, forgiven. But as God, through Paul, tells us, we jot, as, again, as I said, you could jot down 2 Corinthians and you can look there. That's, that's what he says for, for all of us. And then we could also read in several other places that those of us who are teachers, who take this word and open it and teach it and preach it and explain it, there is an even greater accountability for what we've done with God's word in God's world in front of God's people. So there's a warning there. Don't presume to be a teacher. That's true. And there's something sobering in that which we should keep in mind and realizing that, you know, don't we all, when we realize there's a moment of accountability coming, it, doesn't, it all, doesn't it always drive us away from sloth and laziness and indifference so as to strive to do the job well, which is exactly what the command is, do your best. Take it seriously. 
That should be sobering. We don't want to stand before God ashamed of what we lay out in front of him. Now, sometimes I kind of feel myself kind of bumping up against something here because sometimes we don't relish thinking about God like this, particularly as Christians. We don't relish talking. I mean, I don't enjoy talking like this. And we don't often know how to put together love and grace and mercy and try hard so as not to be ashamed. How do I put those things together? Well, in some way we have to say, that is what the verse says. A worker who has no need to be ashamed, do your best. So in some way, there, there is a point where we will stand before God and he will evaluate it. And we need to know that at the, even at that point of evaluation, he is still the God of grace and mercy who loves us deeply. And I, and I think, how I put this together at least, I think part of the love and the grace and the kind disposition he has for us is to tell us now what's going to come so as to move us to a spot where we won't have any need to be ashamed. I think he's loving us now with this. So hear that and take it to heart. It should be sobering. And ironically, I think there's something that is supremely helpful in the very thing that's sobering. Helpful in this way that it, it speaks to and I think answers the other large, maybe even the larger part about what's challenging about this verse. At least for me. I, I think for a whole bunch of pastors and elders and leaders and teachers and missionaries and evangelists and I think for parents trying to teach their kids and ordinary neighborhood Christians trying to witness to the person across the fence once we get past the, the straightforward kind of the human temptation to laziness which is in all of us and we are saying okay I'm going I'm to try hard I'm going to expend effort here we face, I think, pretty quickly another huge barrier. Public disapproval and indifference that looks like irrelevance. Resistance and indifference that has no apparent positive result. That makes me pretty quickly say, what is the point of this exactly? Try hard. Okay, I, I'm, I'm not going to be lazy. I, I, I come pretty easily to hard work. I'm not going to be lazy, but I am certainly prone to look around and say, most of the reaction I get is negative, but a whole bunch of time I get no reaction at all. I don't think anybody even cares. What is the point of this? I keep talking to and there's no result. I keep preaching and there's no result. Which is not an indictment of you. Please, please, please understand that. I'm just saying, I, I, I feel that very easily. And so I, I look out and I, I'm looking at response from people and I'm, I'm sensing there's no result, there's no change, there's no, like, what's the point of all this? What's my problem there? What's your problem there if you're in that spot? 
You've placed yourself before someone for their approval, for an evaluation of the work. And it's a wrong audience. Let me put it differently. I'm trying to figure out if this is worth it. And I'm looking here. The exhortation is present yourself to God as one approved. In a really respectful way, please hear this correctly. Every minister should say, I don't care what this audience thinks. I have an audience of one. In a very respectful way, every one of us should say that. Which is not to say we are not servants, which is not to say we do not love, which is not to say we, we are not accountable to, to people in this audience. But it is to say, I stand before an audience of one. What he thinks, what he has assigned to me, and what he thinks of that, at the end I'm going to lay it in front of him. What do you think, Lord? I have a pretty clear view of what they all think. What do you think? When I was in high school, I played a lot of baseball. I played a lot of middle infield, which is second base and shortstop. And I had one really interesting series of practices in which coaches were trying to teach us middle infielders how to turn a double play, which is when the ball's hit on the ground, you get a runner out at second base and at first base. And they taught us, when you field the ball, you come up hard, throwing hard at second base. Because it's got to be quick. You don't come up and look to see, how's it going? What should I do? Uh, too late, too slow. You don't come up and throw to where the other guy is as he's running towards the base. That's the wrong spot. It's got to be over here at the base. You come up quickly and you throw hard at the base. Well, what if the ball goes sailing on by the base into the outfield? Well, that may happen. And here's the point. And the people in the stands will boo you for throwing it away. But I am the coach, and I'll know your slowpoke teammate is at fault. And he'll go to the bench, not you. They will boo you. Place yourself in front of me as the judge. That is a huge piece of heart and hope in ministry. Who are you placing yourself in front of for their approval? Who are you trying to stand in front of and hear from? Well done, good and faithful servant. And to ministers, which is all of us, some of us in particular, but all of us, what Paul wants to do is do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. Place yourself in front of him. What's he going to say? Well, here's what he's looking for. Rest of the verse. And this is perhaps the better known half. He's looking for, and he would approve of, rightly handling the word of truth. Older translations read, rightly dividing the word of truth. Maybe, it, maybe that's how it's stuck in your mind. 
By dividing, it means dissecting as to, to get into something and take apart its details, get under the surface so you, so you understand it. It doesn't mean like setting it apart into segments. It means getting into it. Understand it accurately. So what God is looking for and what he's calling ministers to do is not outcome, it's process. I want you to rightly handle the word. The results I'll take care of. I want you, minister, to dig into this thing and understand what's here and how it is and how it works so that you understand it and then so that you can accurately express it to others, whether it be your children at bedtime or a congregation from a pulpit. Whatever it is, however we are ministers in whatever context we are, what God says is what they need, what would do them good is to hear the gospel from this word. And so what I want you to do is I want you to understand it and then express it. That's what a faithful minister is. That's what would leave a minister at the end saying, what do you think, Lord? And him saying, well done. You understood it. You tried hard. You exerted effort. You spent time and you understood it. And then you thought about, how do I, how do I express that to this audience, to these people, to this little one right here? How do I express it to them so that they get it and can understand it so they can be best equipped to trust it and obey it and find life from him? That's what our job is as ministers. In whatever setting we are placed, that's what the church needs, people who minister the word accurately and well and try hard to and care to. That's where we start. And on the flip side of it, though, that means, verse 16, that we have to avoid irreverent or ungodly babble. More than just personally avoiding it, he means get rid of it. Reject it and oppose it because that's doing harm. That stuff does harm to others. We see it in verse 16. It leads them into further and further ungodliness and you see it pictured then in the, the, the image of verse 17, gangrene. Dying flesh that just spreads and spreads and spreads till it kills you. So what's the difference here between 16, 17, oppose this and 14, don't argue about it. In 14, what's ruinous is the arguing. In 16 and 17, what's ruinous is the material itself. And so we got to cut it out. Like Paul did with Hymenaeus. Mentioned there, he mentioned in 1 Timothy how he'd actually cut him off, how he'd, he'd sent him out of the church. Well, here he has a different sidekick, and they're spreading this, not disputable matters, they're spreading this idea that the resurrection has already happened, which if you follow the logic through means that he's redefining what the resurrection even is. It's not a physical resurrection, it's some sort of a spiritual resurrection. In other words, he's denying core doctrine. 
I wonder if it's upsetting the faith of some. And if we don't do anything to oppose that, we're not doing our job. So we don't want to quarrel about words, but we must stand against ungodly, destructive falsehood. How do we do that? Well, in part by teaching the Scriptures faithfully and in part by obeying them ourselves when it says things like, warn such a person once and then set him aside. Like Paul did. Put him out of the church to protect the church. They, they can and they will teach whatever they want out there, but they cannot be allowed to teach that in here because that will kill. And the faithful minister says, I'm not only going to teach the truth, I'm going to reject what's false. That's also our job. So we major on the gospel and we avoid quarreling about words. We dig into the scriptures to understand them accurately and cut off what's wrong and bad and destructive. And lastly, here's the third point. We do all this with a great confidence. Here's the third point. Ministers labor in confidence that God keeps his people. Ministers labor in confidence that God keeps his people. This is the last verse, verse 19, and it comes in this position where if, if you're reading through these verses and listening to the, to the sobriety and the severity of, of the warnings and the exhortations here, there, there could be a, a bit of uneasiness in this passage because it could sound like this. Okay, hearers might be ruined, verse 14, and people led into more and more ungodliness, even into death, 16 and 17. And there are people around who have swerved from the truth and are spreading all this. And it's unsettling the faith of some in verse 18. The church, I mean, the whole collection of, of people in the church, it all seems kind of like that. Un unsteady and and kind of a little bit wobbly and it's, always, it's, it's constantly threatened and there are people circling around like wolves around a flock and they're, they're nipping and they're biting and, and they're looking just for some opening to get in and, and, and kill and I had better do my job or the whole thing's going to fall apart. The wheels are going to come off this cart and it's going to collapse. It's up to me. I'm solemnly charged before God and I'm going to be held accountable. That what did I do? It's up to me. And it can be a little unsettling. And then along comes verse 19, thankfully. That's not going to happen. So take a breath. Whew. For me, I, I, I speak this in the context of, of, a, of a church and constantly worried about the church like this. Maybe you're an elder and you think like that too. Maybe you're a pastor and you think like that too. Maybe you're a parent and you think like that about your kids. I, I'm like doing the best I can to like 
family devotionals and we pray together and we go serve at, at some particular ministry outlet and we talk to our neighbors and I, I read in the Bible and but the whole thing feels like this because I know very well that his heart loves Instagram and everything that's on it. I better be careful, this thing might actually fall apart. <laughs> it's going to be a little looser than it was at the beginning. That can be unnerving. And it can be very relieving to, to read, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. So we've got firm foundation stands sealed. There's actually another word in there. There, there are a handful of words that say solid, established, not going anywhere, secure. Nope. Not because you, Steve, you, parent, you, teacher, are going to do a great job. I just know it. But because God keeps the church. That's why it's not going anywhere. It bears this seal. It stands firm and bears this seal, which is another way in the ancient world of saying something cannot be overturned. It cannot be revoked. When the king takes his ring and seals it, that's the end of the discussion. A firm foundation, solidly standing, the true collection of the faithful, written across this immovable, unshakable, solid collection of people, the true church, are two statements that tell us all we need to know about this uncertain situation. And it's a very dramatic, a very dramatic collection of statements. Because of what they mean and because of where they come from. First, what, what do they mean? The Lord knows those who are his. God has a people. We've talked about this in this book already. God has a people that from before the beginning of time he's been in pursuit of. And he captures and keeps. He knows who they are and he doesn't fail. He knows who are, who's his and he keeps them. And secondly, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. We don't know who are his, but we find out when we call them to depart from iniquity, and they do, because they're his. Because they're his, something new is written inside of them. A new heart is given to them, and when alerted to, through the mouth of a minister, when alerted to some truth and warned about some error, his people respond and depart from iniquity. And that's how he keeps them. That's what those two statements mean. And then when we bring them out from their context, we see it even in more vivid color. Because those come from Numbers chapter 16. An alarming story about the rebellion of Korah, if you know it. You can jot down number 16 and go back and read it later. But these two, these two statements are not direct quotes. They are, they are allusions to statements in that story where hundreds of people rebel against the faithful minister Moses. And Moses feels like, I have a, a budding, growing revolt on my hands here. What is going to happen? Is the this, is this thing going to fall apart? And God steps in 
and says, no, it won't. And in dramatic fashion, fire from heaven, he puts down the rebellion and preserves his people. And in that context, the Lord knew who were his and called them out of the mouth of Moses, step away from the iniquity, and they did. And God brought an end to it. That's the illusion that Paul makes here, reminds Timothy to give him hope. Yeah, God keeps. God keeps. Sometimes in dramatic fashion, God keeps. He used the minister's words, yeah, but it was God who did that. There's no doubt about it. Moses didn't do that. God did. He'll use the minister's words. He'll, he'll use us in faithful preaching and teaching. He'll use us as we do what, what he has assigned us to do, as we, as we avoid quarreling, as we dive into the word, and we major in the gospel. He will use us, but he will be the one who keeps, not us. And he certainly keeps. The foundation stands firm, sealed, solid. That's good news, important news at the end because our task is daunting and one that we can rest in realizing that actually if I'm a capital M minister or I'm a lower M minister, I'm not actually, you're not actually the minister. Jesus is. He's the one who speaks. He's the one who calls his sheep. He's the one who preserves. He's the one who grows to maturity and gives life. It's his flock. It's his church. And he keeps it. And that's good news. It will never fail or fall because he has sealed it by his word. Let me pray. Lord, will you do two things here now for us? Two things that come to my mind at least. Maybe you would want to do a third or fourth that you know best. But I'll ask you, will you cause us to rise to the challenge first? In whatever capacity we find ourselves engaged in ministry of the word, will you stir us to do it well? to try hard, to take your scriptures seriously, to stand on the gospel. Stir us to that end, Lord. And then secondly, will you give us hope that you're actually the one doing it and you always succeed. So stir us to action and give us confidence, please. Build your church. Cement your people into it and give us life from your word. We're going to turn now to communion. And as we do that, Lord, will you continue to meet with us? And we take now not, not the spoken word, but we, we take your gospel message in these visible elements. We just take it kind of in a different way now. We hold in our hands rather than hear in our ears. We hold in our hands an emblem that reminds us of the blood, an emblem that reminds us of the body broken. And so will you keep preaching to us, ministering to us your truth, your gospel. And so build us up, please. 
Do that now as we commune with each other and with you. Thank you, Lord. We trust this time to you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.